you brought your Bibles with you this morning, uh, open them up to Ephesians. We've been working our way through this letter of Paul, uh, and we're now in Ephesians 3 and have been here for a few weeks. We've looked at Paul, um, the apostle. A couple of weeks ago, he was Paul, the easily distracted, uh, but we renamed that and we called that hyper-focused apostle. He Because he keeps being distracted by the same thing, which is the gospel of grace. That's what he keeps going back to again and again. So uh, it's not just a euphemism, I don't think. I think it's warranted. He's hyper-focused on the gospel. Last week we saw how he was being redundant about the gospel. He just kept going back to it again and again, hammering it into our often uh, stubborn uh, minds. And and that's a good thing. Uh, So question for you this morning. What does one who is hyper-focused on and redundant about the gospel of grace, well, what does, what does he pray for those to whom he is ministering? So I'll remind you of the context of, of, of Ephesus, of this Ephesian church. Uh, these are lots of new believers. They've recently come to faith in Christ. And they're still living in a very hostile and, and pagan environment. Their coming to Christ has put them at odds with almost everybody around them. And so that's who Paul is writing to. And so what's he going to pray for them? Well, he's going to pray for their growth. They're new believers. He wants to pray that they grow and, and mature in that very gospel that he's been so hyper-focused on and redundant about. He's praying, in essence, uh, as has been mentioned, I think, in some of our prayers this morning, or certainly in Sunday school it was, uh, being conformed to Christ. Uh, right? That, that these believers would grow to look more and more like Jesus and, and resemble him. Um, you, you know that is the goal, right, of, of being redeemed and rescued and, and saved. It, it's not just to say, all right, you're saved, there you are. Right? Um, it's not just getting a golden ticket to heaven and avoiding hell. God wants to do something in your life. He, he wants to change you and, and transform. And and so that is what Paul is praying for in this prayer that we have in these verses today. Uh, Perhaps it's the most important prayer ever prayed and recorded for us in Scripture. Because in it is contained the secret to Christian growth and maturity. That's a pretty bold claim, right? One thing. If you do this one thing, I guarantee you will absolutely grow and mature as a Christian. As a follower of the Lord Jesus, does that sound attractive to anyone? Do any of you feel like maybe your growth has stalled out? Is it, is it spitting and sputtering? Maybe it's even going in reverse, it feels like at times. <laughs> I think this baffles a lot of believers. Right? How in the world can I overcome this temptation? How in the world can I have success against this addiction that I'm facing? This, this recurrent sin that just doesn't seem to ever want to go away. This, this disobedience that just seems to come so natural to me. Right? If you feel that frustration, 
you are in good company. Right? And not just with me, but with the Apostle Paul. Right? This drove him nuts. Perhaps you've, you've read about his frustration in Romans 7. We won't turn there this morning. You can look at it some other time. Romans 7 is about as frustrated as we ever see Paul. And he's just beside himself. He says, I keep doing the things that I don't want to do and I know I shouldn't do. And that the things that I know I should be doing, I'm not doing those. He's just at his wits end. And so that's Romans 7. He follows that up in Romans 8 with the logic of the gospel of grace. Right? It's, it's a beautiful, uh, it's beautifully laid out. Uh, it is a wonderful uh, explanation of the gospel, the logic of the gospel. This is what the gospel is. This is what it does. This is what it means. And we desperately need that. But that's not all we need. Right? What we get from Paul today in these verses from Ephesians. See, it's not just our minds that need transforming with logic of the gospel. It's not just our intellect that's involved, though it's involved. It's also our affections. And our affections might even be more important than the intellect. Now, both are indispensable. We've got to have both. But when our affections get transformed by the power of the gospel... That's when growth and maturity, change and transformation really begin to take place. When our affections get involved, it ignites what we already know to be true in our minds. That's the secret that we're finding in these verses today. Uh, Stand, if you're able, for the reading of God's Word. Six verses, Ephesians 3, 14 through 19. For this reason, this is Paul speaking, for this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth of and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. May God bless the preaching of his inspired, inerrant, infallible and authoritative word. Let's pray. Oh God, if this is as important as I've built it to be, and I really do think that it is, then if we ever need your Holy Spirit to come and help us, it is now. If you long for us to grow as followers of the Lord Jesus, if you long for our faith to deepen, if you long for our obedience to what you have commanded to flourish, then come and help us in this moment. Help us to see and understand and know and be convinced of this one secret to seeing that all happen. Help us to get it intellectually, but not just intellectually. Help our hearts to get it. 
change and transform our very affections that will lead to our growth. Do this for your glory. Do it also for our good. We ask in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Please be seated. So did you notice what the secret is when I read? The secret to our growth and maturing, likely many of you did. But before we dive into it, I want to give you a bit of context for why this is the secret. If this secret is the solution to the problem that is our lack of growth and our lack of maturity and our lack of obedience, then I would like for us to put a very fine point on what our problem really is. I want us to name it very accurately, maybe even painfully accurate. All right, this is an, another instance of if you read that Sunday devotional that we gave to our members and, and regular attenders uh, as a Christmas gift. Week three talks about being okay with receiving the bad news about our great need, about our sinfulness, so that the good news would be that much more real and alive to us, give it some relevance. Well, I want to give you a principle this morning about the motivation of everything that we do. And it doesn't come from today's verses. In, in fact, I was trying to come up with a list of verses and say, well, I can prove this from the scriptures, but then that would take up all of our time and I would never get to these verses. So it doesn't come from any one single verse or passage of scripture, but I would argue, and you should examine it for yourselves, Right? Search the scriptures to see if what I'm claiming is true. That's your job, okay? I would argue that this principle has solid basis from the whole of scripture, from Genesis to Revelation. And here's the principle. We always do what we most love to do. We always do what we want. Now, instantly, some of you are sitting there and you're protesting. That's not true. I do lots of things I don't want to do. I don't love to do lots of the things that I have to do. So, I want you to pause. I want us to drill down a little bit deeper. Um, First example. April 15th will be here before you know it. I don't want to pay my taxes. I certainly don't love to pay my taxes. But what are the other alternatives? Have the government confiscate my house? Freeze my assets? Send me to prison? So, because I love my house and access to my bank account, and not being in prison, (laughs) more than the pain and discomfort of paying taxes, my love motivates me to pay my taxes. All right? Um, I might not want to clean out my gutters, but because my fascia boards will rot, and my crawl space will get inundated with water that will cause very expensive repairs. 
And I want those things even less than I want to clean my gutters. Technically, I want to clean my gutters more than I want those other things. In the end, we're always choosing to do what we most love or want to do. Right? That's the principle. And I think there's ample biblical warrant for seeing that as true, for seeing that the heart, the affections are driving what we do. They're motivating what we do. So I want us to take that principle and use it to think about our spiritual growth and transformation. Think about Paul's frustration that I mentioned from Romans 7, right? Doing the things I know I'm not supposed to do and not doing the things that I know I should be doing. In those moments, what is Paul doing? Paul is doing what he most loves. And we would all do well to sit with that for just a few moments. To let that sink in with all that it means. To Paul's words and thoughts, let me add Jesus' own words and thoughts. In John 14, Jesus tells his disciples, and by extension he's telling us, If you love me, you'll do what I command. Now, if that's true, Jesus said it so, right? It's true. Then what must be true in the moment that I choose to not do what Jesus commands? What must be true is that I love the thing I'm choosing to do more than I love Jesus. Oof. Right? Is that how you and I think about sin? Right? Do we ever put that fine of a point on it? chose to do this thing because I love it more than I love Jesus. I don't think we very often do that. I think we much more often say things like, well, uh, it was a moment of weakness. I, I slipped up. I made a bad choice. It was a fluke. And some might even protest. I don't love my sin. That's ridiculous to say. How can you say that I love my sin? I, 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 don't, I don't love gossip. Well, probably not. But you do love the feeling that it gives you when you gossip. You do love the feeling to be the one to have the inside scoop and to get to break the news to somebody. You love how that feels. And that's why you choose to do it. No one would say that they love pornography. But you love the, the fleeting moment of pleasure and titillation and escape from reality that it provides. And so you choose to do it. 
So if we are doing what we want to do and what we love to do, we're motivated ultimately by our affections. And if that's true, then the power to change, the power to do what we're supposed to do, what Jesus has said, hey, do this, and don't do these things, then that has to come somehow, somewhere from changing what we love. By changing what we want. And I imagine at times some of the words and phrases that I'm using might be lifted directly from Dr. Brian Chappell's commentary, which I've been using on this. So I'll, I'll give him credit if I've borrowed some of his words to help explain this. That's uh, probably where they came from. But that's the principle. We always do what we love. We always do what we most want to do. And, and, and part of what that principle means is that in our sin. We're loving that thing that we've chosen to do more than we love Jesus. So I want us to take that and look at this prayer that Paul is praying. And what the secret is and how that will change our affections, which will result in our growth and maturity and obedience. The obedience that we all long for and it seems so frustratingly out of reach so often. Verse 14, for this reason. Now, where have we heard that before? Well, back in verse 1 of chapter 3, when he started to pray, but then he got, uh, not distracted, uh, then he got hyper-focused on the gospel again and took a little excursion on the gospel, but now he's really ready to start praying now. For this reason. And so if this was originally from chapter 3, verse 1, then what the reason is, the for this reason, you've got to go back to chapters 1 and 2. Uh, and most folks would consider that it's everything that Paul has been talking about in chapters 1 and 2. All the riches that he's been describing. It started in chapter 1, verse 3, when he said, blessed, uh, when God has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. And then he goes on and he describes all those spiritual blessings. And that's probably a, a good way of thinking about this because of, uh, in verse 16, he's going to mention these riches again. So it's all these riches that Paul is, uh, is basing his prayer upon. And so because of that, he kneels. We think, all right, what's the big deal? He, he bows his knees in prayer. Well, that's actually unusual. Jewish custom for prayer is standing. Right? On special occasions, in moments of intense emotion or solemnity, one might kneel. In moments in the Old Testament when, when, the, when the prophets or the priests were overcome by a manifestation of God's glory, their knees might begin to buckle and they might just fall to the ground. Because they just couldn't physically bear the weight of glory anymore. And so they knelt or they got prostrate on the ground. This must be one of those moments for Paul. He's greatly humbled by God's glory. And yet there's an interesting combination of things here. A juxtaposition of things that don't seem to go together. He's, He's praying to the Father. Right? So you've got on the one hand this immensity and this greatness and glory. Uh, and on the other hand, there's this intimacy. 
He's a father. Not just of Paul, not just of the Ephesians, but verse 15, indeed of everyone who's ever believed or ever will believe. And of course that fits so well with with one of the constant themes of this letter, right? The unity of all believers in, in the body of Christ. And so Paul's praying, he's praying to the Father, he's praying, verse 16, according to the riches of his glory. So whatever Paul is about to ask for, it's going to be big, it's going to be comparable to, it's going to be of the same measure as God's glory, which is a lot, right? It is great. And he's asking God to grant something, to give something. Whatever is coming, whatever request is coming, Paul knows this has got to be a gift. We don't deserve it. No way we could earn it. It's got to be a gift. And because it's a father that we're asking of, we know that it's going to be a good gift because the father, our father, only gives good gifts to his children. What is it? What is the gift? Power. Strengthened, Grant that they be strengthened with power. And gosh, isn't that what we all need? Right? Isn't that what would help with our faltering, sputtering attempts at obedience? Sometimes going in reverse. Right? Don't, don't we often feel so powerless when it comes to sin and temptation and obedience? This power is going to come through the Spirit. So it's interesting to see this this whole deal is Trinitarian. It's involving all three persons of the Trinity, right? We're praying to the Father. The Spirit's got to provide the power and the Son is coming. Just wait. But here's the big question. Are our problems with disobedience and sin and temptation, those are mostly external to us, right? The things that we're doing, they're out here. Right? But where do we need power? We need power out here? No. We need power in here. We need power in the motivation center of our lives. That's another clue pointing us in the right direction. See, it's not our behaviors themselves that are the big issue. It's what's driving those behaviors from the inside. That's where the problem really stems from. It's not the devil made me do it. Right? Um, It's I did it and I wanted to do it. I wanted to do it more than I wanted to obey Jesus. I loved it more than I loved Jesus. I did it because I love to do it. And so I need to be strengthened on the inside with power. Now, what's that going to look like when it happens? Well, it's going to look like verse 17. Christ dwelling in our hearts. How very interesting. Now, sometimes people use the language of asking Jesus into our hearts, right? Um, uh, when, when talking about conversion, when talking about salvation. This is actually the only place in all of Scripture that talks about Jesus dwelling in our hearts. It's right here. And Paul's not writing to unbelievers, so he's not writing about that initial moment of salvation when Christ comes to take up residence in us. He's writing to the church. He's writing to people who already believe. Right? So this is a growing and an increasing realizing and recognizing of Jesus' already there presence. 
This is Jesus taking more and more control of our lives. This is Jesus taking possession of more and more real estate uh, in, in our hearts, in our affections. We're growing. We're being changed and transformed as he dwells. We begin to look more and more like him, conformed to his image, to use the language of Paul in Romans 8.29. Now, how does this happen? How does he come to dwell in our hearts more? Is it we're, right, I'm going to think really hard. Jesus in my heart, Jesus in my heart. Jesus, right? Is this a work of our, of our discipline? Um, do we need an accountability group to remind us? All right, keep your mind on Jesus. Keep your mind on Jesus. Keep your mind on Jesus. No, it happens through faith. He dwells in our hearts through faith. Through our continued believing, trusting, resting, that's how the transformation happens. Let's keep going. What does it look like as we start to be transformed, as we start to grow? Well, it looks like the end of verse 17. We become rooted and grounded or established in love. So Paul's mixing his metaphors. He's never done that before. Um, they're both about growing, but one is agricultural, right? How a plant grows by being rooted. The other is architectural, how a building grows, right? You establish a firm foundation. And whichever metaphor you prefer, our growth, our maturity as disciples begins with love. It has its root. It has its foundation rooted and grounded in love. Now, if you were just to hear that little phrase, rooted and grounded in love, you might get the wrong idea. Well, I guess I need to be a more loving person. If I'm supposed to be rooted and grounded in love, I need, to, I need to try harder to love those around me. That's not what this is about. Do you need to be a more loving person? Probably. That's not what this is about. Not rooted and grounded in your love. Rooted and grounded in the love of another. Verse 18, it's another mention of our needing strength. We lack the power that we need. Uh, We don't have enough. We really don't have any. To comprehend something that needs to be comprehended. What is it? Well, Paul goes about describing it in the most unusual fashion. It's broad. It's long, it's high, and it's deep. We normally think in three dimensions, and Paul is giving us a fourth, which is on purpose, right? I want you to know something, and it's going to go beyond your normal way of thinking, your natural way of grasping or comprehending something. In fact, Paul says, the thing that he wants them to know, the thing he's been praying for, for them to be strengthened with power in order for them to know, it can't be known. I want you to know this, and it can't be known. It surpasses knowledge. 
What is it? What is it that Paul is so eager for us to grasp and comprehend and know? The love of Christ. The love of Christ. Rooted and grounded, not in our love, rooted and grounded in the love of Christ. Not love for Christ. That's another way we might hear this and and, and head down the wrong path. Oh, I need to love him more. You do, but we're going to get to that. You do, but we're going to get to that. right? First stop for this train is the love of Christ for us. That's the thing Paul knows we have got to get a handle on. Not that we love him but that he loved us and gave himself for us, right? So we're going to steal a little of Paul's own thunder because that comes from Ephesians 5 too, right? He loved us and his love motivated him to give himself for us, right? To sacrificially die as our substitute, to pay for our sins, iniquities, and trespasses, if you read the little devotional, right? Dying the death that we deserve to die. That's what he was doing and he did it. He loves us. He gave himself for us. That is what we have to know in order. Look at the end of verse 19. What's the goal of all this? To be filled with all the fullness of God. That's more language for growth and transformation and maturity. That is the secret for our growth and maturity as believers, knowing the love of Christ for us. But it can't be known. It surpasses knowledge. It has this whole other dimension that our little minds can't fathom. Do you think that you have the love of Jesus all figured out? Do you think, yeah, easy. I've heard this before lots and lots of times. Come on, move on to something else. Do you think you've got a handle on the love of Jesus that he has for you? You don't. You do not. You and I are just scratching the surface. How how broad is Jesus' love? Well, broad enough to encompass people from every tribe and tongue and language and nation. Right? How long is it? How about eternity past? Where we were chosen in him before the foundation of the world. How about eternity in the future? When he's promised to never, ever, ever let us go. How high is it? As, as high as the heavens where we're seated with him, Paul's already said in this letter. How deep? As deep as hell where every single one of us deserves to go for our sin and rebellion. That's part of what makes the love of Christ incomprehensible. Uh, Paul mentions this in in another of his letters, Romans 5, um, beginning in verse 6. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For for one will scarcely die for a righteous person. Eh, Maybe, maybe. But perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's pretty amazing, right? We hadn't gotten our act together. We hadn't turned things around. 
No. In the middle of our sin, he died for us. Now, that's the love for of God for us in Christ that saves us, and that's pretty astounding, but what about now? What about right now when we keep on sinning and we know better? Friends, if the love of Christ that saves you is amazing, then how much more amazing is the love of Christ that keeps putting up with you? When we're still loving other things more than we love him. How how does the jilted lover keep coming back again and again and again to the one who cheated on him? Do you you see the value of being honest about how bad the bad news is? Uh, Of putting this very fine point on our sin and calling it what it is. That when we choose to sin, we love that sin more than we love Jesus. When we are that frank, when we are that candid about it, it makes the love of Christ for us in the midst of all that soar to the heavens. Does it not cause your heart to sing? Your heart to burst with joy and gratitude. And indeed, that's how this works, right? That's how this works. When my heart begins to grasp in some small, feeble way the love of Christ for me, my heart can't not respond to him in love. Here's how the secret works. As I understand better and better his love for me, then my love for him grows. And as my love for him increases and grows, what does it do? It crowds out my love for sin. That's why the language in verse 19 is so good, right? We're being filled with fullness, right? There's only so much room, right? Our hearts, our affections, they only have so much room. They are not infinitely large. And the more our hearts fill up with love for Jesus... Everything else gets crowded out. There's no room left. It automatically pushes out the lesser loves, the things that are beginning to strangely lose their attractiveness to us. Because Jesus is so stunning and so beautiful. That is the secret to growing as a Christian. Not trying harder, not being more disciplined. Loving Jesus more. Growing to love him more. Being strengthened to know him more. That's critical, y'all. That is critical. You can't muster up more love for Jesus. Oh, I'm going to try really hard. No, you're not. The Spirit, verse 16, has to do it. Now, very practically speaking, The Spirit has to do it. Does the Spirit use anything to do it? Does he just zap you and say, poof, you love Jesus more now? I mean, he he could do it, but he doesn't do it that way. He uses means. He uses what we Presbyterians call ordinary means 
of his grace. He uses the word. He uses prayer. He uses the sacraments. And by saying he uses the sacraments, that's shorthand for he uses corporate worship because that's where you have to come to get the sacraments. Right? All of these things are used of the Holy Spirit to increase first our knowledge of Jesus' love for us and then in response our love for him. God's word can help you love Jesus more. How? Because chapter after chapter, it's revealing to you Jesus' love for you on every single page. You see it, you behold it, you take it in, you meditate upon it, and it changes you. You do realize, I hope, that that's the point of Bible reading. Even 1 Kings, which we've most recently been in in our Bible reading plan. That's the point. Prayer, worship. These things were designed. These things were given to us. Not to make us more disciplined so that we might go out and have a better chance at obeying. Not to make us more determined, more resolved than ever. Oh, I'm going to really obey this week. No, you're not. These things reveal to you how beautiful Jesus is. How deep his love for you is. And all of these things should ignite your love for him. Now, once again, I have skipped over something very important. Four little words in this passage, and I haven't given them any time at all. But I'm about to, and this is what we're going to finish on. You and I haven't been designed to do any of this on our own. Obviously, we need the Spirit's power and help. But even after that, Paul's not praying that we do this alone. Verse 18, he's praying for us to have strength to comprehend with all the saints. Y'all, this is a group project. Every single one of the yous in this passage is actually a y'all. They're all plural. We do this together. We learn to grasp and comprehend and know Christ's love together. Because we don't do this so well all by ourselves, right? Those measurements, right, of his love, high and wide and long and deep, right? We tend to measure much more simply and with human measurements that we can understand and comprehend, right? Like if times are good, if blessing abounds, then that's plus, plus, plus in the love column, right? But if times are hard and there's difficulty and there's suffering and there's adversity, that's minus, minus, minus. That's how we naturally think. It takes all of us to realize and recognize and remind each other and point out to each other, no, the love of Christ for you is there even in the midst of this hard thing. Maybe even especially in the hard thing. Because it's going to strip away some other things that you loved and some other things you were depending on. We need each other to realize and recognize his love for us in all of its varied forms. 
It's together that, that we discover and benefit from the secret to Christian growth. Right? We come to love him more than our sin as we come to grasp together how very much he loves us. That's the secret. And I promise you it will work. I promise you it will work. Let's pray. Oh God, where we have tried so hard by sheer willpower to stop sinning, to obey more, to live lives that are pleasing out of a sense of duty. Will you rescue us from those things just like you rescued us from our sin initially? Would you grant us the humility to say, no, we can't do this. We can't do this on our own. Would you grant us the humility to see that we need the Spirit to strengthen us with power in our inner being, at the the motivation center of our lives, which is our hearts and our affections? And would you flood that motivation center with a knowledge of the love of Christ that only you can provide because we can't know it on our own? Would you do that, O oh God? Would you grant that to us? That's what Paul so desperately wanted for the Ephesians, and by extension, he wants it for us, and I want it for us, and we're crying out to you for it now. Would you give us that good gift according to the riches of your glory. Help us to see in some small way how much Christ loves us and would you grant that we be enabled to love him in return and may that, oh God, crowd out all these other things that we find ourselves loving instead. Would you do all of this for your glory and for our good, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.